listening to the Babylon podcast hosted by Jonathan Miller and Scott Linda and brought to you by Connected Learning Partnerships. Jonathan and Scott are international educators and coaches committed to better understanding the world of learning. The Babylon podcast is an inquiry into why contemporary educators are grappling with the issues impacting learning in our schools and exploring how diverse approaches to leadership and coaching might offer a fresh perspective. Hello and welcome everybody to the Babylon podcast. I am your host Jonathan Miller and as always joined by my co-host at least for the first five and the sixth <laughs> episode today, Scott Linder. Scott, how you doing today, buddy? I'm really, really good. I've finished DP exams, well at least the students here have finished exams, so I'm feeling relaxed and excited to have a chat with our guest today and jump more into coaching. Awesome. Congratulations on being finished with your exams. I know that's a big part of your year. The topic of our babble today is coaching in practice, and this is going to be a two-part series. So the first one is obviously part one, and we're going to call it Emerging and Sustaining a Coaching Culture. We are so blessed to welcome our guest today, Steve Barkley. For those of you that might not know Steve, he has served as an educational consultant to school districts, teacher organizations, state departments of education, colleges and universities nationally and internationally for the past 40 years helping them facilitate changes necessary to reach students and successfully prepare them for the 21st century. He's an author. He has a weekly blog called Steve Barkley Pounders Out Loud, which has evolved into a really great resource for teachers, administrators, and coaches all over the world. Steve, welcome and thank you for being with us today. How are we doing? Thank you. It's great to join you. So let's start out with, can you just give us an intro from your experience about the power of coaching? Yeah, so when you said that 40 years, I've been at this for four decades, and I entered my teaching career in a coaching environment. So 40 years ago, as a uh, university uh, senior, I was in an experimental program where I got the student teach an entire year. They waived a bunch of my courses, and I student taught. And I did that student teaching in a classroom that had a master teacher, two student teachers, a graduate intern and visiting professors. So a whole year of being observed and getting feedback set the stage for me. And so that occurrence 40 years ago drove my work. I did my teaching all in open kinds of settings where coaching was just a natural ongoing component. And it wasn't until I began working as a teacher trainer and began to travel from school to school, that I realized that that opportunity was missing for a lot of other people. And that's what drove my work to look at all the various ways that I could bring more of a coaching culture into schools. Steve, appreciated just listening to you there. And I was just wanted to pick up on what a maybe a unique perspective that to start a teaching career and have coaching as a natural component of it from the start. And I guess I'm just wondering about the concept that teaching is a shared and a public act is something that we talk about here. And I guess, am I right in saying for you, it had never been any other way? Is that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you looked at this two areas of beginning and number one, in my mindset, if the universities that are doing teacher training were at this correctly, they would send people out to student teach as a team. Yeah. So you'd put four or five middle school teachers together, you'd send them to the same location, and their student teaching should occur in that team kind of environment. If you're a school and you're hiring beginning teachers and you have a mentor program for new teachers, 
yep. then in my mind, your mentor program should be an introduction to a coaching environment. So I worked a bunch of years ago with a school district in New York State. And they were trying to figure out how long should a mentor program for beginning teachers last? <laughs> you know, should it be a one-year program, 18 months, two years? And they finally decided when the beginning teacher threw open the doors of her classroom and said, you may all come in, that was the end of mentoring. Wow. <laughs> and so the job of the mentor was to build that culture and that confidence and that skill set within that beginning teacher to truly enter the profession. I wonder in that space, I was reading something, it was based from Australia, but about teacher burnout and for new teachers coming in. And then after between three and eight years, then teachers were going, no, this is not the things that I was hoping it would be. And so I wonder if the bureaucracy and that sort of stuff sort of gets in the road of maybe an entrepreneurial mindset coming in of all the things I could hope teaching to be as a young teacher and then finding that the machine just sort of stops it. How to maintain that enthusiasm for all the things that are possible is uh, an important Mm -hmm. one, yeah? I worked uh, with the research that Andy Hargraves put out quite a few years back where teachers tended to plateau in their career somewhere around the seven-year marks to to kind of match up what you were saying. So there's early in my career, I have to be in this continuous growth process to learn all the things I need to learn. And then I hit that okay spot. So critical for schools, for those teachers in that five to six to seven year bracket, that you're really putting into the teacher's mind the picture of what that next goal is that I want to achieve. Hmm. Uh, How do I want to continue moving my teaching ahead? The the problem is using the historical evaluation structure by that fifth or sixth year, you're hitting the okay mark. And so there could be a tendency that I could write it out at that point. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, a a coaching culture always has a person thinking about what that next step would look like. One of my favorites to give administrators is to start the school year by asking a teacher, what's the one thing you've yet to achieve with learners that you want to achieve? And then that ought to drive the support now that we as a school are going to provide to you as an educator. That's a really, really good question, especially to start a year with, so you can start off positively. You talked about sustaining professional and professional growth in a sense. So if the longer lever of excellence is sustaining purposeful professional growth, how do schools then move beyond essentially the flash and into the cultivation of high quality professional growth? And how do you sustain that? You sustain it by connecting high quality professional growth to high quality student learning. So the flash comes when the focus is on what the program has the teacher doing. But if your professional growth is constantly being driven by what it is you want to create as the next step in student learning, that's what's going to drive back to drive the ongoing professional growth. So I'm the biggie on the backwards plan. Mm -hmm. So you begin by identifying what it is you want to make happen for kids. What would kids have to do to make that happen? And now what do we have to do as educators to bring that opportunity about for kids? Mm -hmm. Several years back, I was working with a district in Texas, rather large size, had 4,000 educators, and they ran their own two-day professional conference closed school for two days. And there was almost like a a newspaper size of all the offerings that teachers could engage in. But every one of the descriptors described the student learning behavior that you were taking this PD to gain. 
So the reason I, as the teacher, am studying to learn this is to bring about this behavior with my students. Hmm. I just thought that was extremely powerful to keep that connection, that having internalized this and going back to my classroom with it should bring about this change in what my students are doing and experiencing. At that point, then you really see the power of coaching. Mm. In connecting with that as well, Steve, it's May 20th right now. We're kind of in like the last final stretch of the year. I know I'm tired. Teachers are tired. (laughs) Administrators are tired. How do we create and maintain a culture of growth, especially when we hit these points in the year of fatigue? Like I've never heard somebody come up to me in May and say, can I have another month of this, please? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I want to tackle that two ways for you. So let me do the immediate because of COVID. I've been going forth with teachers to take a look at the writing that's being done describing where a lot of us are today due to COVID at a spot that they're labeling as languishing. And so if you think about a continuum, we're at one end of the continuum, you're depressed or burned out. And if at the other end of the continuum, you're striving and thriving and being fed, there's a spot in the middle of the continuum that they've labeled as, as languishing. And I found the term really helping teachers because a lot of teachers aren't really burned out. They aren't depressed. They're just not finding the satisfaction in what they're doing. So they may be meeting the needs of their kids. The kids may be set to take those IB exams. But for some reason, as a teacher, I'm not getting the reward that I normally get from working this hard that's labeled as languishing. Mm. And the writers who are describing languishing are saying that the cure for languishing or the treatment for languishing is flow, being engaged in that activity where flow is occurring. So Mm. you're jumping in deep. I have a great example. I'm, I'm working with a school right now that in response to how they had to reschedule things for COVID, a couple of teachers ended up teaching multi-level classes. So they had first and second graders and some other teachers had third and fourth graders. And those teachers decided that they'd like to do it next year when the kids are in their classrooms. They want to keep the first graders they had as second graders and bring in half a class of new first graders. Well, so they now got 12 teachers and I got to meet with those people this week to support in their planning. And you could feel the energy from their engagement in planning that next step. So to me, that's where we have to have folks. Now, when you look at the end of the year, historically, think about what it is we're doing to people by the way that we structure school years. How different would it be if in May, uh, students went to their next year's teacher and teachers spent the month of June working with their new class, being engaged in starting rather than ending. It's the whole concept that learning and for me, teaching, teaching and learning, it's an organic process. And as soon as we we go to that calendar, we're trying to get people excited about the end. (laughs) I'm trying to get you you excited that these kids are leaving. We throw the parties at the end of the year. I always said, you know, the parties ought to be at the beginning of the year. We're so excited that you're here. Well, what if the beginning of the year was an April, May activity Mm. and you got engaged with kids and then kids kind of went out to the summer. It's this stop and start piece that's not organic. Yeah. 
It's really interesting in thinking about the connection with spaces of flow, perhaps. I know, I haven't met a teacher yet that doesn't draw positive energy from the kids they're working with, you know. So in that space of how you might fill your cup, right, to be able to engage with, even if it's not a new set of kids, but just that it's not an end, right, that we're going to continue and yeah. another person that's just ongoing because that's quite a powerful idea. I'm finding myself sort of going, think it about, seems so obvious. Why are we not think doing about, <laughs> Think about doing it together. Okay, so let's come back to the team. So the month of May or June, let's, let's suppose it's the last six weeks of the school year, hmm. is spent by teachers currently who've been working with students for the year, beginning to work with students who are going to be beginning to work with students that they're going to get the next year and those teachers working together. Yeah. So you got grade five kids moving into a middle school concept. What does it look like for grade six students and teachers to be planning the activities with grade five teachers and students to build this bridge for what it is that we're going to experience and start the transition now? instead of the countdown to the end. If you think about that question, I'm trying to get people excited about ending this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As somebody that crosses days off on the calendar, once you get to about the last 15, (laughs) 14, (laughs) come on, baby, we're almost there. (laughs) If I carry that in, many instructional coaches end up with nothing to do in the first month of the year and the last month of the year because teachers end up not seeing that as a coachable time. Mm -hmm. I wrote a blog about how important the first day of school ought to be to have coaches in your classroom. What is it that you want kids to experience on the first day of school? Mm. And how would you engage a coach to assist you in making that first day as impactful as it is you want it to be? I think the other connecting part to that, like just reflecting on those there are moments of transition in a school, right? Or you've mentioned five yeah. to six middle school, yeah, elementary school, middle school. How powerful also for the teams of teachers to make that more seamless. So there's you want the anticipation, the excitement about the first day, but how important is that understanding in teams of teachers, say grade fives and grade sixes together, that it's not just this cut off and bump and now you're in middle school. Here's an understanding in our practice, this end of year is no longer an end of year. It's just a natural morphing and a natural transition. Great for kids, great for teams of teachers to have that understanding across the school too. Push push it all the way out to graduation. Yeah. Do kids approach graduation as the end or as the beginning? The real power is graduation to be the beginning of the next step. Right. And where during that senior year are you think about the kids that, you know, they're going on college visits. Yeah. <laughs> they're engaged in the next step before the next step gets here. Yeah. The more we build that, the more learning becomes this ongoing process. Yeah. And it speaks to the purpose of school, or at least in the secondary space, right? That it's not just we're doing this to you, you're moving through it. It's this part of life. And then we're going into this space. It's a Imagine you started a problem-based inquiry thing in May that engaged this year's teacher and next year's teacher. Yeah. And that problem-based inquiry went into your two months off as a learner. You walk into school in the fall and the teacher's picking up with that activity that you're already engaged in and moving forward. (laughs) Yeah. That's a bridge. That's, oh, yeah, yeah, I like that. That's a really cool idea. (laughs) Thanks for this. (laughs) You always stretch my thinking, Steve. That's awesome. One of the things we've been talking about, well, it's not just a relationship to COVID, but it's how 
fluid international schools are in particular in terms of both internal movement. So thinking about that team dynamic that people will might move internally within a school, but even in and out of schools that I don't know if it's the, the new constant, but that's something that we're experiencing here a little bit. What do we need to be mindful of in sort of that transition space for teachers coming in to be able to understand that coaching culture and to understand how we do things, I suppose? Well, you've now said it has to be a built-in understanding at two spots. So the first spot is the existing staff on a team or in a school needs to assume accountability and responsibility to the new person coming in. So those transitions have to be purposeful. They don't happen by accident. Hmm. So I have to hire for it. So my interview process, person needs to be informed. They're coming in and joining the team. And then the team needs to have it built in as a purposeful culture so that when I show up, I enter the school and I step right into it. Hmm. And I'm going to give you an example of one of the best ones I experienced. My wife was serving as an assistant principal in an international school. So the start of the year, a new teacher came in and three weeks into the year, she got called to a meeting and was informed that a student with autism was going to be coming to the school and would be in her classroom. And she left that meeting And within a half hour, she had an email out to the entire staff informing them that she had found out about this and that for the next two weeks, her door would be open at any time anybody was available to stop in. And if they could get messages to her about what did they see in her classroom that was going to be helpful for the student who would be joining and what things should she be considering and thinking about for the student who was to be joining. And when my wife came home and told me that, I immediately sent an email back to the principal of the school saying, congratulations. Hmm. One, you know how to hire. (laughs) And two, you now know it's in the culture of the school. So anybody who's been in the building for three weeks and recognized that coaching from colleagues was the way to tackle an issue that was new learning for you as a teacher is solid. Sounds like that lady fast-tracked it through the mentorship. (laughs) If you think about it, we realize that we have to have transitions for kids. And too often, we don't have transitions for staff. International schools are adept at bringing students in and getting a student into the culture of the school. We have to have the same purposefulness in our planning for staff. I worked in one international school where when a new staff came, they were handed the names of two teachers on staff who were inviting you to coach them. Hmm. Oh, that's cool. And I will catch the powerfulness of that. You know, most schools would do the reverse. They'd go to a new teacher and say, here's two teachers experienced in our building who are available to help you out. Instead, they went to the brand new person to the building and said, here's two people in the building that would like you to come into their classroom, do some observation, give them some feedback. They love that idea of somebody new bringing things that can be advantageous to us. What a powerful message to send. Absolutely. So Steve, if there's one or two pieces of applicable advice for schools, for leaders, for coaches to create and sustain a culture of coaching, what would those pieces of low-hanging fruit be? So the first is that your administrative team, your instructional coaches, and your teacher leaders 
should be the most coached people in the building. Hmm. And so that you immediately get out that message that coaching is an activity the high-performing professionals are engaged in and believe in. And then you create and make the opportunities for it easy and you create the expectations for it. The mistake that too many administrators make is they try to enforce it. They want to start a coaching program by saying everybody has to get coached three times (laughs) during the year. And as soon as you step out and put that in place, you get in the way of the real value of having coaching. So I had an administrator years ago give me these two words that I thought they were just brilliant. Her suggestion was you begin with invitation and you move it to expectation. The invitation is around long enough for the culture to be built. Once the culture has been built, it now becomes an expectation. I like that. It's a really nice place to sort of maybe end this first part of the coaching conversation with Steve because I think in our next episode, Jonathan, we're going to jump in and talk about it in practice, some lessons learned. And so I'd love to pick that up with you, Steve, around the aspect of having leaders being the most coached people in the building. I think kind of powerful. Makes me want to get out there and have a go at it. I know, right? (laughs) Yeah, definitely my big takeaway if I had to put it in a sentence, it would be coaching is the way. Coaching is the way. So thank you so much for your time today, Steve. As always, it is so great just to pick your brain. I'll speak for myself, but I get so many takeaways and just tangible pieces from you every time I have a conversation. I absolutely love it. So thank you so much for taking the time with us today. What do you think, Scott? Should we get out of here? I think it's time to uh, yeah press pause and we'll come back to Steve for next week. All right. Thanks again, Steve. Thanks, thanks Steve. guys. Take great care, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next week Bye-bye. for part two. Babylon, everybody. Babylon. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Babbled Podcast. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. You can connect with Jonathan and Scott via Twitter at JFJMiller and at Lynn Scott or through connectedlearningpartnerships.com. Babbled.